Gospels, and let's open them back again. We won't read the entire text that we did last week, but we'll go and we'll look at Exodus chapter 4. So we're finishing, if you have an outline, if you don't have one there in the back there, we're finishing God is your greatest asset. And uh, we were talking, we're still talking about this idea that there's a mission that God's given to us as individuals, but collectively as a church, as an assembly of believers. And, um, and that, uh, you know, in accomplishing all that God has for us, sometimes we can look at so many different reasons why we think or perceive that we cannot accomplish something. Have you ever thought, well, God, this is just too hard. And sometimes, let's just break it down and try to be a little practical. Sometimes it looks like this. Sometimes that's in a marriage relationship. Um, we, we get so low, and, and what I mean is in, in, in the Air Force, we would say we would get so tactically low to the ground that we can't see the big battle, right? And sometimes what happens in the grand scheme of things as a Christian is, okay, so we see this, you know, we come to church and we get this lofty view and we, we get our mission orders and we say, okay, Lord, this is what you want us to accomplish. But then we would go home and we lose altitude and we get so in the trench, we get so in the street and we get so surrounded by the daily and the minute details of life um, that the greater mission can't be accomplished because the mission in our own marriage or in our own home is uh, afflicting. And so we forget at that moment that even in a marriage, even in a relationship with a, with a, as a father and a child or as a friend um, or in, a wor- in the workplace, we forget that God not only has a greater mission, but he has a micro mission right there that's a part of that greater mission. And we forget in that essence, you know, we say in the grand scheme of things, yes, God is our greater asset when it goes to marching and giving the gospel. But we also forget that that same asset is our greatest even in our marriage and our home. And even in the daily decisions that we need to make, Brayden, can you get her a, an outline for her? Um, even then, God is still our greater, greater asset. So what I want you to be able to do is when I'm, when I'm talking like this, I want you to be able to take that same truth and be able to bring it down into the drawers that you're going to be opening every single day. Does that make sense? And so in Exodus chapter 4, you're reminded that God has come to Moses and he's appeared to Moses in what form? What's Moses looking at? He's having this discussion with what? A burning bush. So the bush is burning. Is it burning up though? Is it being consumed? Okay, so it's kind of a miracle, obviously. We would call this a Christophany. This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, right? Because God manifests himself through Christ always. And as he's standing here, God tells him to do what with his shoes? Take them off because the place where now standest is holy. Okay, so it's holy ground. So we know that there's a couple of things I want to remind us of, and that is wherever we meet God and wherever we meet him, it's holy. Okay? So the day, like this morning when I opened my Bible, I opened my Bible and started praying before I read it, that's holy ground. And, and wherever we go, technically, is holy ground because God lives in us. Amen? And because of that, there, there needs to be a sacred reverence about our lives. The, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There needs to be an awe of who God is. And, and let's be honest. When Moses approached the bush and God spoke to him, do you think he was in awe? Oh, 
Absolutely. Okay. Now watch. When God started telling Moses his plan and the reasons kind of behind his plan, he didn't dispel it all, but he gave him some pretty big directives. I've heard their cry. I'm going to deliver them, and I want you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Did he still have the same awe of God during that interview? No, he lost it. Okay? And that's the whole thing we're getting at here. All right? So at the end of Exodus 4 here, I want you to pick it up with me and I look at verse 10. And he says, Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. Okay? And he goes into this and says, Lord, and the Lord said unto him, who, who, who made your mouth? And, and who maketh the dumb or the deaf or the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? In other words, it's almost like Moses forgot that God's the one that made the mouth. And then he goes, okay, so you're forgetting not only, you're forgetting, Moses, who made your mouth? Who makes all the mouths? Who makes all the tongues? Who makes all the ears to hear? It, am not I the Lord? So Moses kind of loses his awe of God. In other words, the miraculous power of the almighty Jehovah. He loses that. He loses sight of that. And whenever we lose sight of who God is, what we're focusing on is who we are, okay, without God, all right? Well, in other words, what we're doing is we are, we, because we have, limited our knowledge or our awareness of who God is, what we're doing is we're limiting what God can do with us. And we're saying, well, Lord, uh, you're the, we're kind of almost like blaming God. Lord, you're the one that made me slow of speech. So how in the world can you make me a speaker? You're the one that made me like this. You know, how am I supposed to do this? Do you even know who you're talking to? And God's trying to get him to say, wait, stop. Do you even know who you're talking to? Right? So we flip the script on God. God says, this is what I want done, but God, you don't seem to understand who I am. <laughs> See what I mean? And it's, it's almost comical by the end of it, right? And then we get to the point where the Bible says that the anger of the Lord in verse 14 was kindled against Moses. And, and he said, it's not Aaron, the Levite, thy brother. I know that he can speak well. In other words, God already has all of this planned out, but because Moses is being so impatient with God and so lack of faith, he has so lack of faith and, he, and he's, he's simply, basically, it's almost like God's looking into his mind and going, I'm not even in there. You, you've taken me completely out of the equation. And, and, and look, you need to stop doing this. Right? We don't see necessarily in the New Testament age, we don't, we don't think of God losing patience and getting angry. Uh, but, but what's he looking at? What, what makes God more angry than anything is unbelief. Okay. We're going to look at that here in just a little bit, but um, I, 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 the reason I say all that is because, remember, as a church, we can look at society and get so focused on all the ills and all the wrongs and all the injustices and all the whatevers, and we forget that God's the one that's allowed it all. We also forget that God's the one that knows about it all. Like, almost God needs to have every news feed up to make sure he's kept up to speed with what we're seeing. Right? God doesn't need that. He knows all things. He searches and knows the hearts of all men. That's what the Bible says. Okay? And so death and hell are before the eyes of God. So you've got to remember all this. So God doesn't, 
God doesn't need any outside assistance to, to help him to recognize all the problems. And what we do is we bring them into the church, and then we say, okay, here they are, and, and we forget, okay, and we, get this, we start to think that not even God can solve these problems. That's what we think in our minds. Because what's happened? We've gotten so low to the ground, and we've gotten so involved in the details, we've forgotten the lofty view of our own God who sees all, who knows all, and has it all in his perfect control. All right? So let's review. Number one, last week we said God has up-to-date plans. The contemporary sin and brokenness are not too big for God. Letter A, his plans are in touch with contemporary needs. All of the brokenness that we see, all of the dysfunction that we see, all of the atheistic society and thought that we see, all want to be healed by God, okay? We said in Isaiah 61, Jesus read this verse in the, at the beginning of his ministry in Nazareth. He said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Now, the only part of that verse that Jesus didn't read was in the day of vengeance of our God because there's an order to that verse. There's a comma. Jesus was proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. And the Bible says, and he shut the book, okay? And he didn't proclaim the vengeance, the day of vengeance of our God. Why? Because that's at the end of the New Testament age. And we don't know when that is, Right? And Jesus wasn't certainly going to get into a debate with those people that were there at that time. So what was he there to do? He was there to preach salvation. Because in three years' time, he was going to die. And he was going to provide a way that nobody could see except God the Father and God the Son. All right? And God the Holy Spirit. So his plans are in touch with contemporary needs. Never forget that. Never look at God as, something, as someone who's contained only here. And he's not contained in the year 2022. Or he's not someone that's in touch with your needs in your home. Okay? Don't put him so outside of the box that he can't do anything about the box. Okay? You need to see that. Moses was limiting God because he was pushing him out of himself and his own personal weaknesses. So his plans are in touch with contemporary needs. Letter B. We said his plans to accomplish his purpose, he plans to accomplish his purposes to ordinary people. We won't go back and we won't look at it, but in 1 Corinthians 18, remember, Jesus said there are not many noble, there are not many, um, not, not many, if you look at Christians by and large, God didn't pick the best of the crop to convince the rest of the world that they need to be saved. He basically said, I've chosen the not, I'm going to bring to not the things that are, right? I heard a preacher one time say, God's chosen all the knotheads, <laughs> right? Because what he wants. And the end of that passage, why did he do that? Why did he choose not so many noble, not so many rich, not so many powerful, not so many wise? Why did he say it? So that no flesh should glory. He didn't say they didn't choose any. He just said not many. Because he doesn't want anybody to look and say, oh, wow, that's a guy, right? He wants to look at the widow that tossed in the two mites so that God gets all the glory. He wants to look at the lepers and he wants to look at the poor and he wants to look at the lowly and he wants to look at the, the Davids, the least of these, right? The last of the Mohicans. 
the people that don't seem like they know what they're doing. Why is he bringing a rock to a sword fight? That doesn't even seem normal, right? Why, why won't these three Hebrew boys bow like everybody else? Why, 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 why are they standing? Why are they still even alive? Why are they even talking with the king, right? Why is Paul, this guy who's, whose speech is contemptible, who looks like a weakling, he doesn't even belong uh, to be standing anywhere, why is he the one that's starting all these churches and gets to talk to King Agrippa? I'll tell you why. Because only by those kind of people does God get glory. So he's chosen. He has the power and he has the compassion and he has the means. To, and his plans are to meet contemporary needs. But he meets contemporary needs through ordinary people. People who are unsuspecting of the world people who are the unnoticed of the world, people who, according to the world's, uh, uh, the world's uh, expectation of what people should actually be and do, we're not the ones that are going to change the world. But remember this, there were 120 people like you and I that did turn the world upside down because they had a great God and they believed and they were willing to be used. All right, so that's where we left off last week. And we said this, we made this statement and several have commented to me about it. He doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. His only working, his only working in this place is going to come from the people in this place. And I made this statement. We, we, it, we're a lot smaller than we ever have been, but our God is never any smaller. Okay? And I, we said, you know, God's not, sometimes we think, well, if we just had more people to come, then we get more done. No. God doesn't say if you just had more people. In fact, there's a story in the Bible that reduced the amount of people so that actually God could get all the credit. Right? 10,000 people, 30,000 people. Let's go down to 300 people. Okay? And, and, and if you look at the motion of God in the Bible, it's never been, he even told Israel, I didn't choose you because you were a, you were a, a lot of people. Because you were a great nation. I chose you because I chose you. I'm not looking for lots of people. I don't need lots of people. I'm God. I don't need anything. But I choose to use people. And normally I choose to use people in a smaller realm because they are the ones who are depending all on me. So, you know, we had, I said we need a caution about this mindset of, well, if we just went out and got someone else, if we could afford another staff member to help pastor, if we could, no, no, no. What pastor needs is God. And what you need is God. And what God wants to do, God can do because he's brought us here together. And we're still here together, all right? So number one, I said that God has up-to-date plans. Number two, let's finish this, hopefully. Number two, God uses unconditional commitment. We're going to tie this back into Moses here shortly. Most Christians in America think of unconditional commitment as something reserved for missionaries in remote parts of the world or from a pastor who goes through very difficult times. That's what they, they expect. That's what they're, they're, they think of. When they think unconditional commitment, they think of a pastor who labors somewhere for... I remember being in chapel, and this guy came and preached. He said, I started a church, and I don't remember, somewhere in Utah... And he'd been there for 25 years, and I think it was like 75 people. And I thought to myself, wow. That guy has labored for 25 years in the same place. 
and this church has never been any bigger than 75 people. We think of that as unconditional commitment. We think of people who, like the Rays in China, where it's getting awful for, for churches and for Christians, uh, or in India right now. Um, and we think, wow, that's just unconditional commitment. They've surrendered, them, surrendered themselves to, if I go to jail, I go to jail. If I die, I die. But this is where God's called me. That's what we think of when we think of unconditional commitment. But God looks for this kind of commitment in every one of us. In every place that we're called, because of the potential in every place to see the power of God change lives. Remember, don't forget, God has up-to-date plans, and he has all power. Okay? But what he needs to have is unconditional commitment before he shows up. Let me ask you this. If God knows everything and we say, okay, God, I'm committed, but he knows what we know and hear that we're not, is he likely to show up? Let me ask you a different way. When Jesus said to the disciples in Acts chapter 1, go to Jerusalem and tarry till till you be endued with the Holy Spirit, and ye shall be witnesses unto me after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Okay. Did the Holy Spirit fall at Pentecost because he saw half commitment? No. Would it have fallen if there was only half commitment? No. Instead, the Bible says they were all in one accord, were all in prayer. They were wholly committed to God. And what happened? The Holy Spirit fell, 120 people spoke, and 3,000 people got saved. All right? Those 3,000 people had, must have had the same commitment because it continued. 5,000 more people got saved. Then what happened? Satan came and said, I'm going to stop this commitment no matter what. Bam! Started hammering people. The Bible says that those people went everywhere preaching the gospel for which they were going to be persecuted. Now, and what happened? And more people got saved. My point is, were they wholly committed or not? Yes. Why has there only been three great awakenings in the entire world since the, since the beginning of the church? I'll tell you why. Because the unconditional commitment has gotten less and less and less and less. Why does it happen in so many isolated places, maybe here, maybe there, <clears throat> where genuine Bible Christianity just seems to be being blessed because of unconditional commitment in that place? Two specific keys to this commitment. And, and, and we, I, I, look, there's no, if you want to be wholly committed to God, I'm going to give you two things today. This, they're very simple, but they're very Bible basic. This is all the commitment is. So there's not like, I have to do 17 things in order to be wholly committed to God. That's not, this is not, I'm not a Catholic priest. I'm not going to stand here and be like, okay, come and take your wafer, you know, wipe the cup and then give it to you. I'm not going to do that, right? There, there's no, there's no sacraments to unconditional commitment. Two things the Bible mentions. What is specifically required for unconditional commitment? Letter A, an unconditional, unconditional commitment to be used of God, period. Acts 9, 6, and he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That's all he said. When we approach God and lay our lives unconditionally on his altar, it is a recipe for him to do something special and powerful through us that cannot be stopped. Listen, 
Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and forth throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Romans 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. To be used of God. Am I totally willing to be used of God? What does that mean? In any way that he wants me to. I don't get to dictate. Moses was like, well, you know, I probably could do something, but I can't do that. Remember? God equips those called. It's called the equipped. It's like, look, I'm God. I made you. I'm going to give you the means to do this because I'm the one who created you, right? So, remember the person who said these words. I'm sorry, 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 sorry. To be used of God. (coughs) Here's the second thing, and that's it. Do I want to be used of God? Okay, you have to answer that question. So to be used of God, letter A is a commitment. Letter B is an unconditional commitment to die to self. That's it. I believe that Christians in general do want to be used of God. And I do believe that. Look. I don't believe that, I don't don't know of any, there there may be some out there, but I don't know of any to date. I don't know of a Christian that would be willing to stand before anybody, me, you, their friends, and say, I don't want God to use me. I don't think, I don't, I don't know of any Christian that's like that. I don't know of one that would say, Dave, I don't want to be used of God. That may disappoint you, but I just don't want him to use me. I don't think that there's a Christian that I know, and, and I, I, I don't know if there one exists that, that would say, honestly, yeah, I don't want God to use me. Okay. Now, now listen, I believe that Christians in general want to be used of God. Unfortunately, when circumstances become difficult or different or discouraging, most of us don't have the fortitude to die to self. Did you hear what I said? Most of us don't have, a, a, have the fortitude to say, no to me what what was and saying if i say yes to my flesh i'm saying no to god for no man ever yet pleaseth god in the flesh most of us don't have the fortitude to say no to self and yes to god we say yes to self and no to god we live for ourselves and die to the work of god in us but i want to remind you of what this looked like remember only two things do i want to be used of god am i willing to die to self at all cost. Am I, remember, am I willing to be used of God, whatever that means? And am I willing to die to self, whatever that means? Listen to these words. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Listen to Jesus' words. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke fourteen thirty three. so likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh, not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Philippians 1, 21, Paul said this way, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Remember the person who said these words did more for the cause of Christ than any other believer in the first century. God took a person who was willing to go and do in any situation for the gospel. When God appeared to Moses and informed him of the task at hand, it was several things. Now think about this. 
Moses. And he was like, whoa, it's amazing. This is God. Yeah, you need to take off your feet or your, your feet. Take off your shoes, dude, because you're standing on holy ground. Okay. Now, I want you to know I've got a plan. I've heard my children in Israel crying, and I'm, they're done. I'm going to go get them, and I'm going to use you to do it. Okay. Now, for all of us, and this includes me for decades, we always think, wow, how cool would that have been to be selected by God? Or we say something like this, wouldn't that have been cool to be Moses? That would have been so awesome to hear God that audible, Vicky, and to have him select me of all people. How special is that, right? But nothing that you read in that passage says that that was Moses' mindset. None of it. Isn't that incredible? Now, I want you to think about that moment. You're Moses. You walk up and you're fully amazed at the sight. This huge bush burning, but not consumed. And you're in complete amazement and wonder. Then out of the bush, it speaks your name. It doesn't have to be Moses. It could be your name. Now you're standing there. God declares all of his plan to you. All right? Now, imagine... Just, just, just think for a moment. When God appeared to Moses and informed him of the task at hand, it was several things. It was completely foreign. Because he was completely content on the backside of the desert, tending his father's lost sheep. He wasn't looking to be used. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't asking any earth-shattering questions like, why am I out here and what's the purpose of life and where did we all come from? He's not doing any of that, right? He wasn't looking for that. So, so when God showed up and showed this, it was completely out of the blue, completely formed. And then it was completely overwhelming. Not only was it formed, he was like, oh, you know, just like Goliath, boom, hit him in the forehead and he's going to fall over. And when God started giving all the details, it got really involved. And all of a sudden, he sees this great God who has this great compassion for his people. And I'm sure Moses was like, yes, go get him. Wait, you want me to go? Right? So this that's what we look at. We look at God and we say, God, all of these problems all over the world, why don't you do something? And he goes, I am trying. My plans are up to date, but I'm not doing it without you. That's where the rubber got really all over the road. When Moses saw himself inside the plans of God, oh my, it got even more uncomfortable it was uncomfortable it was inconvenient and it was inconsistent with moses plan for himself and moses started dealing cards pow pow but god pow but god pow but god pow but god pow god's like look the house is full we don't need any more cards so as far as moses was concerned it couldn't be done by him to Moses, God had picked the wrong guy. He had picked the wrong place. He had picked the wrong time. We have the privilege, excuse me for a moment. We have the privilege of knowing something about God that I don't think Moses knew. Because we have the Bible and because we read the Bible. We have the privilege of knowing that God is never in the wrong place. And wherever God is, it's never the wrong time. And God never picks the wrong person. Moses didn't have that knowledge, apparently. So we find him 
the greatest lawgiver. His bust is still in the Congress of the United States. It sits ominously over as the great lawgiver. We see him as someone that did something great, but didn't start out that way. He was arguing and dealing and fighting. What was he fighting? His flesh. All he saw was his own limitations. Why I can't, why I can't, why I can't, why I can't, why I can't. And God solved it by saying, not that I can. He solved it by saying, I am. So let's look at number three. God nullifies every excuse. You know what I appreciate about God's interview with Moses? It's that even though Moses didn't want the job, God wanted him. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever gone into an interview and figured out, yeah, I don't want this job. And they just pursued you and pursued you and pursued you. No matter what they threw at you, you're like, no, 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 I am not working for you. And they just wouldn't leave you alone, right? Well, God wanted him and he knew that he was the one to do this, that he didn't leave him alone. He removed, instead of just finally kicking him to this curve, he removed all of the temporal excuses and he did it by providing eternal promises. And that's, the, that's what I want you to understand is that the true riches that God gives to every believer is grace and power and strength and courage and faith. Why do Christians need to overcome those things? Those are all spiritual. Would you agree? There's nothing tangible about, tangible about those at their very essence. Okay? But he gives all spiritual blessings in high places through Christ because only through those promises can we overcome the temporal obstacles. Friends, we keep trying to live this life in a physical manner. And we're losing we keep looking at this world in a physical manner. We keep looking at all the problems in the world, listen, in a physical manner. They are all physical problems. Listen to me, they are not. They are spiritual problems. They are the product of sin. Everything that we are so indated with and so limited by are all physical circumstances. And God says, you don't understand. This is nothing with me. I'm God. This is what I want to give you to overcome these circumstances. Let, let, let's put it in a Bible illustration. When the disciples were out in the midst of the Sea of Galilee and their boat was in a wrong way, Jesus came to them on the water. And in the middle of all of that, John said, hey, that's the Lord. And Peter was like, in all the storm, and he was like, Lord, if that's you, bid me to come into the other water. And he said, come on. What did Peter do? He got out of the boat and he started walking in the midst of very physical circumstances on the water to the Lord. But then something happened. He started looking at everything physically and the faith that God gave him to overcome all the circumstances was now gone. And in place of that was all of the impossibilities and what happened to Peter's life. Sunk. Okay. And then what happened? Jesus reached down, pulled them up, got in the boat. They were on the other side. And he said, look, here's your problem. Little faith. And they still didn't get it. And he had to exercise that how many times with the disciples? Oh, let's just talk about the feeding of the 5,000. The Bible says they got in the boat right after that. And Jesus started trying to teach them 
about the problems of the Pharisees. And the Bible says that for the hardness of their heart, because you considered not the feeding of the 5,000. What happened? Physical circumstances. Here's the faith. Here's the doubt. Here's the courage. Here's the fear. And you see that in the disciples' life. Why? Because it goes all the way back. Everybody has to face, this is what God wants out of us, but this is what I see coming out of me. And so what happens? We limit the Holy One of Heaven because of our unbelief. When we take the physical circumstances of life and we remove God, it's chaos. It's moral anarchy is what it is. But if we, if we pick up for a minute and go, oh, yeah, I, for, I keep forgetting, I keep forgetting, I keep forgetting, I keep forgetting that God has up-to-date plans for all of this brokenness. But he's not going to intervene without people. And instead of saying, I wish God would use someone, I wish God would call someone, I wish God would do something about this, did we ever stop to consider that he's been trying to appear to you and I at a burning bush every morning? And say, God, I don't know how much I can do today, but today I'm surrendered to be used, no matter what that means. And God, today I want to surrender to you wholly. I want to die to myself, whatever that entails. I'm wholly committed to you. And if you see that is pure from my heart, then I'm waiting. Woo! Can you imagine? D.L. Moody said the world has yet to see what God can do with one man who is wholly surrendered to the Holy Spirit of God. Comma, I endeavor to be that man. And history writes, millions of souls have been saved because of D.L. Moody. Um, let me give you four quick lessons from the Moses interview with God. <clears throat> and I think you, you may have them there. When God says, okay, this is what I want you to do. Letter A, no need for self-pity or to complain. No need for self-pity or to complain. Why me? Because God answers, I'll be with you, and that's enough. Be content with such things as you have, for I have said I will never leave you nor forsake you. Okay? Number two, letter B, if God calls you and says, hey, this is what I want you to do today. I want you to be used this way. I want you to die to yourself now. Okay? Letter B, no need to doubt or worry. Because this is what God says. Or, or, or this Moses said, what if they don't believe me or listen to me and say, God didn't appear to me? With unbelievable assurance, God assures Moses, I'll give you a miracle or two to inspire you and to capture their attention. I'll just work. Letter C, no need to, put, to point out inadequacies. Lord, I, I, I've never been a good speaker. Well, God, weary of Moses, rationalizes, rationalizations, responds with command and a promise. God, uh, 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 um, uh, God says, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. And I'll even give you a speaker. I'll provide the amplification system. His name is Aaron. <laughs> Letter D, no use suggesting God use someone else. <laughs> he even says that. God... It's all right with you. Send somebody else. God says, I'll give you someone to help you, and I'll give you both. I'll give both of you resources to speak, and I'll teach you what to do. Now, the reality is that this time in life promises to be difficult through fighting resistance to the truth. We're living in it. Okay? Promises to be that way. But by God's power, it also promises to be a time of incredible productivity for the glory of God. But what does he need? He needs people who are totally surrendered, wholly committed. 
Somebody said our assets are significantly greater than our obstacles. All we have to do is refocus our vision. Our assets are significantly greater than our obstacles. And who's our greatest asset? God. Listen to me. Let's, let's, don't completely forget it, but let's take it out of the church for a minute. Your greatest asset for what you think is your greatest trial in life today is God. My greatest asset for what I would consider my greatest trial today is God. And the earlier in life you get that and hold on to it, and the longer, look, we get it. It's not about getting it. We get it. We comprehend it. It means to grab a hold of it with both hands. We get it. And we come in here and we get it. It's not a matter of getting it. It's how long are we going to hold on to it? When we get in the truck and start arguing about where we're going to lunch? Or who's going to do the laundry? I've had to do laundry this week. Last night at 11.30, I was like, Brayden, we got to pack and I've forgotten to do the laundry. Why? Because the laundry is just always done. Elves come in and they do the laundry and I have no idea how it gets done. It just happens. My drawers are filled. The laundry thing is empty. It just happens. No, my wife does it. And now I had to do it. I'm like, I don't even know. My son, my son is 11. He goes, dad, you don't know this, but there's, the, there's directions outside by the, by the washer and dryer. You can do it. I don't think I can read to do, I don't, okay, so my point is, I get that I had to do it, but I didn't hold on to it, we, we, we need to hold on to that as long as we possibly can, every single day, God, I know that you're in control of all things, I believe that you are almighty, and you are all sovereign, you know what's going on, now God, help me to be one part of your plan, whatever that plan is for me today, I wholly surrender to it. I die to myself. I want to accomplish your will. Whatever it takes, God, please use me. Do you see holy commitment of me? Because if you don't, show me where my reservation is. Because where my reservation is, God steps in and says, there's no problem here. (laughs) I can use even you. Isn't that awesome? Let's pray. Father, thanks for being so good.